Hello, everybody. And um, up next, we'll have the scripture reading. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. If not, you can follow along on the screen. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem will last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenants of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day, we are covered in shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants to prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of your ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, 
Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understands this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Amen. Amen. Thanks for reading. That's I'm always encouraged or yeah, amazed when we read through these such these long texts. You guys all still with us? That's an interesting one. Ends on uh, some interesting notes. Uh, just before we get into the message today, I just want to remind you guys that today is Mother's Day. How many of you guys knew it was Mother's Day? Hope all of you. Um, and if you are a mother here, see mostly younger people, but maybe there might be some moms in here. Uh, as you exit here, we have some flowers we'd like to bless you with. Uh, they, this was through all the services, and we're the last service, so you don't get first pick exactly. But uh, there are some nice-looking flowers still there. So, and if there are some left, and there's not very many moms, and you will maybe see your mom today, then maybe you can take one uh, to her as well. So, and if you haven't yet, please call your mom. And uh, I haven't yet, so mom, I promise I'm going to call you later. As a time difference, so I have a, a bit of an advantage. And I definitely want to especially welcome you guys. It's a bit smaller today. I kind of maybe expected that. I mean, the weather's beautiful, and uh, as soon as the sun comes out in Germany, uh, uh, people tend to get a little crazy, like they've never seen the sun before. Uh, if you look along the river there, I was like, wow, it's like, uh, all right, guys. Crowding in. We're still in a pandemic, remember? <laughs> anyway, I get it though. It's nice. It was hard for me to even come in here today. It's a really beautiful day, but I'm glad that you guys are here. I'm glad that we can look at this text together. And I believe that God has something he wants to say to us through his word today. Now we're continuing through the second half of Daniel. Uh, we started, well, we started the series a long time ago, but uh, we started looking at the second half of Daniel just a few weeks ago, and we started in chapter 7, uh, where these kind of, the, there's a shift in the text, and we begin to see these prophecies, and we looked at chapter 7, where we see these fantastical beasts, and we talked about where to find them. It's a very interesting uh, sermon title, but uh, you can check that out. It was a couple weeks ago. 
Last week, we looked at another prophecy with rams and goats and horns and such. And we looked at how we see these future kingdoms of Persia and Greek and the Greek empire that would rise after Daniel. And we also focused on this persecution of the Jews through what an historical figure that uh, we can recognize as Antichus Epiphanes, and he's this antichrist type. And so that's what we've been kind of looking at last week. And today, uh, we do have this prophecy at the end of the text, and it's often referred to this, uh, the, the 70 weeks uh, prophecy, and it actually, it covers a lot of things. It covers the time all the way to Christ, and uh, it covers some antichrist imagery, and even going beyond, some would say to the end of time, some would say uh, to uh, just about 70 years after Jesus, depending on your eschatology. Uh, but... If that excites you, uh, come and talk to me after the service, because today we're actually going to go back a little bit to what, what our motive was, what our purpose was of this series when we first started it over a half a year ago, quite a while ago, uh, which is to look at the man, Daniel. And as you can see, we have, he's a man of purpose, a man of prayer, and a man of prophecy. And we certainly have seen him as a man of purpose and the way that he devotes himself, the way he carries himself. And he's always put into these high positions, working often under or closely with kings and leaders of empires. Sometimes we can forget that when we read that he also had this huge political career that he also was heavily involved in. He was a man of purpose, and God certainly used him mightily and purposefully throughout his exile in Babylon. He was taken there when he was very young. And all through his life, God used him mightily and purposefully. Now, these last weeks, and certainly leading up to the end of this book, uh, we have actually one more prophecy after this. Uh, chapter 10, 11, and 12 is one kind of long, uh, going through one long prophecy. But uh, so leading to the end of this book, we, have, we see definitely Daniel is a man of prophecy. We certainly saw that in the last few weeks. Making Daniel this kind of vessel to reveal great truths about what was to come. God kind of puts this on him. He makes him this man of prophecy. And so he does this so that Daniel could record these events with certainty so future generations could read them, including us today, and learn and grow from them. Now, Daniel is also certainly a man of prayer. He's certainly a man of prayer. In the first half of the book, we saw Daniel's faithful prayer life, and we see that Throughout a few different points, I remember quite uh, vividly this moment when even at penalty of death, when praying will get you thrown into a den of lions, he did not waver in praying faithfully three times a day as he always did, and it would not change, he would not change that pattern even on pain of death. So we see Daniel as a faithful man of prayer, but particularly unique to chapter 9, here we get a glimpse of Daniel's actual prayer life, his private prayer life, what his prayers actually looked like. What did he pray? It's nice to hear that or to see how he's a faithful prayer, but what was he actually praying? And here we get this glimpse of his prayer. And as we see a glimpse of his prayer in private, we get to know the character of Daniel a bit better. When I say in private, you're like, well, was it really that private? We're reading it here. But this, is, this was recorded, and I think Daniel only really recorded this prayer because of the prophecy that God gave at the end in response. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have even been able to read this prayer. But we get this awesome glimpse, and this is a time where it's just him and God alone. What is he praying? What does it look like? And here we get 
a little bit of a view of that, and it tells us a lot about who he was, how he grew in his relationship with God, and about what burdened his heart and what motivated him to pray. The truth is, glimpsing into one's prayer life in private reveals more about their heart, their relationship with God, and their character than most other contexts. You see, in public, I could pray right now, we can pray in public, and it's easy for us to put on display what we want people to see, the version of ourselves that we like best or certainly that we want them to see in us. But when it's our private prayer life, when it's just us alone with God, what do we pray then? This reveals what we truly believe. John Owen once said, and I like this quote a lot, what an individual is in secret on their knees before God, that they are and no more. That they are and no more. Who you are alone in your room before God, that's the real you. That's who you really are. And everything else is going to be some a manifestation of what that is. That's who we really are. Who are you when it's just you and God? Do you have a private prayer life? What does it look like? What's your focus? What's your drive? What do you pray? What do you pray for? So let's take that idea, that concept, that principle to heart as we go through this text and look at Daniel and this glimpse of his prayer, and then briefly, God's response. Verse 2. Let's read verse 2 again. This is or the, starting with I, Daniel. I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, just, uh, we'll kind of, I'll touch on this throughout. So the people of Israel, they've been destroyed kind of dispersed from their homeland, many of which have ended up in Babylon. This was, of course, uh, predicted by Jeremiah quite a ways before Daniel. And depending on when you consider the starting date, uh, that 70 years is kind of coming close to an end. It's not quite over uh, but it's getting close to an end. Probably been about 60 or so years at this point when Daniel is praying this prayer. But what I want to, us to take from this as we kind of look through, keeping in mind look, this examination of his private prayer life, the first thing we learn about his prayer life is that Daniel is a man who studied the Word of God. He studied the Word of God. And we see that in his prayer. We see it all through his prayer, actually. This prayer is taking place about 11 years or so after the last prophecy. So the time between chapter 8 and chapter 9, probably about 11 years or so. Uh, Daniel is probably about 80 years old. I just find that interesting to take into account as we read this. So he certainly has some wisdom. And we can imagine that he's been pondering the visions that he received over a decade ago. I mean... Those of you guys who, who have read them before or were here last week or the week before, they take some pondering. They take some, some, some consideration. And he, even at the end, says, oh, who, can, who can understand this at the end of last week? 
He's probably taken some time seeking God for what it means, but also wanting to know how it applies to God's people in his time. So he's, he's trying to understand this. And I think in that, he, he also remembers his dilemma, their current dilemma, that his people are still in exile. The walls of Jerusalem are still only rubble. The temple of God is still in ruins. And he looked to the word of God for answers. He was seeking God's truth, God's understanding through God's word. He read and sought God through Scripture. And it's clear that he didn't just read it once. Again, it was 11 years had passed since this time. And I think we can maybe, it's good to just, in our own world, we can maybe assume that he did it kind of like we would, maybe just quickly read and say, eh, I don't see anything. This doesn't make any sense. Or maybe we just kind of, all right, God, I'm ready, and this is what I need to hear. And we just open our Bible and see what it is. I don't think that Daniel was throwing darts at a scroll and seeing what God might want to say. And that's not how it worked. It happened through study, through seeking, through wanting, having a hunger to know more, and reading through these old prophets. And we see him quoting Moses, so he read through the law. We see him reading, quoting Jeremiah. He read through the prophets that came before him. He read it regularly, studied it, prayed over it, and sought to understand it. And here we see him having this moment. He gets it. He understands it now. He sees what this prophecy is, is meant. It's meant for his time. And when we look at this prayer, we see that Daniel is prompted to pray through reading Scripture. His motive, his motivation begins with this understanding of Scripture. And as he read through Jeremiah, he began to see how this prophecy is being fulfilled through his current exile in Babylon. And this prompted him to pray for God's mercy, that God would be quick that God would be quick to end that 70 years. To those of you who might be tempted to say, why do we need to read this stuff? Why do I need to read this stuff? Why do I need to read about prophecies of Daniel and all these weird images and beasts? And why does it matter? And to that, I would encourage you to take the advice via the example of Daniel himself. As Daniel read through the prophecies of Jeremiah... Who, and maybe he read it several times and, and didn't really get it. What is, what, how does this connect? And there was a moment when it began to make sense. And when it did, it prompted him to pray. It prompted him to see God's hand and work in his life and in the life of his people. And he read it and he understood it. And I want to challenge you guys to wrestle with these truths, to wrestle with these passages, not just the prophecies, but wrestle with Scripture. When you come to a point where you are a Scripture or a passage, and you think, I don't know what to do with this. I don't understand it. Ah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't apply to my life. It's not important. Don't do that. Don't give up on that. And I was reminded, uh, actually, I've been wanting to put this in since we started these prophecies because I really like this analogy of, of thinking of Jacob. I don't, if you don't know the story of Jacob... Well, you can go back and read it. It's a long story. But there's one point where he's actually wrestling with this, this man of God. It's some kind of, it's, maybe it's an angel. Uh, some would maybe even say it's, it's Jesus in some form. But whoever it was, it was, it was a spiritual being. And he's wrestling with it. And he wrestles with it for, for days. And, 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 and it seems like he's winning. And so the angel touches his hip and basically dislocates his hip. And so then he's, you know, kind of cheats a little bit. But... At any rate, Jacob then grabs a hold of him and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. 
And sometimes we need to take that approach when it comes to Scripture. If it takes me a year or two years or five years or ten years or eleven years, as we see here with Daniel, I'm going to wrestle with this. I'm going to seek to understand it. I'm going to hold on until it makes sense. I'm not going to simply give up because my mind can't comprehend it right now. Because uh, certainly, if Scripture doesn't make sense, it's not usually Scripture that's the one in lacking. It's our ability to understand it. And if we're willing to wrestle with it, I believe that God is faithful to reveal it to us. That if we're quick to give up, we'll never know. So just something to give you guys off my notes and challenge you with. As we read through the prophecies of Daniel, we see things that have already come to pass, which encourages us and challenges us to remember that God is in control. He knows what he's doing. He is the hand behind all of history. We also see glimpses of promises of a glorious future. With Jesus Christ coming again, reigning as Lord and King, King of kings for eternity. I certainly hope that this, at the very least, sparks a new interest in seeing the purpose of these passages in the Bible as a way to ignite, to motivate even your prayer life in private. So wrestle with these. Let's go to verse 3 and see as he, become, as he begins to understand this, what it leads to. In verse 3, it says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He's moved. It ignited something in him. He's excited, but he's also he's mourning for his people. Daniel's response is to seeing this, these prophecies about his own time was not to simply accept it. Well, that's just the way it is. I guess that's just how it's going to happen. It doesn't matter. I'll just uh, sit back and wait till God's done with this judgment. Oh, he was moved. He was moved to pray. To re- and we'll look at his kind of a strategic nature of his prayer as we go through this. But he's moved to pray. His response was immediately to go on to his knees to request for God's mercy And he does it in in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He's praying for God's quick fulfillment of these, of this 70 years. And I think one way we could think of it is, uh, it depends on, well, what does God consider the beginning? Maybe he considers it when Babylon first attacked Jerusalem, or maybe he considers it when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And let's 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 start with the beginning god let's let's maybe take the very first date so that that 70 years comes to an end quickly and in the end it does it does god in a sense you could say would have taken the very first moment possible to see the fulfillment of that prophecy and it's actually just about 3 years or so after this prayer that uh, god begins to allow the people to go back into jerusalem and they're given uh the permission to rebuild the walls and the city. So he does it. He's moved in his heart with passion and mourning for God's people. And I ask, what motivates you? What motivates you in your prayer life? I hope you have a prayer life, but what motivates you? What's, why do you pray? Do you pray just when you have a really hard day? We got a test coming up. Or like, All right, God, I need help. I need help. Maybe you pray when you have a really good day. Hey, that was great, God. Thanks. Thanks for the good day. Thank you for your goodness. That's also good. Or maybe you pray when someone you know, someone close to you is going through a struggle and you want to you pray for them and lift them up in prayer. 
Please hear me. All of these are very good reasons to pray. Please continue to pray those prayers. Those are all good prayers to pray. But here in chapter 9, we just read through a prayer that is motivated by Daniel's empathy for an entire people, all of Israel, and ignited with passion through, God, through reading God's Word. And I'm reminded of our need to pray for our city, to pray for the lost right outside our doors, to pray for the persecuted church, praying for those who are outside of our direct circle. Yet to still pray with such passion and empathy and love that one would think we were praying for our own mother, our own father, our brother, our sister, our close friend. But we're actually praying for people that are far off across the world that we've never even met. Daniel didn't know all of the Israelites. but He's praying for them and on their behalf with great passion. And what we see next, I find, to be very challenging for us today and maybe how we might have been tempted to pray in Daniel's position because Daniel's a righteous man. He's a righteous man. We see actually no record of any sin he committed. And the way that he structured his life, his faithfulness, his unwavering belief and trust in God in all circumstances, and God's favor on him seems so profound, so deep, it's almost superhuman. It's like, who is this guy? And I'll be completely honest, if all of Israel had been even kind of as good as Daniel, kind of as righteous as Daniel, they never would have gone into exile in the first place. If they lived like Daniel lived, there wouldn't have been an exile. There wouldn't have been a judgment. And as Daniel sees his own people in the predicament they're in, because of their sin, one might imagine this small hint of self-righteousness as he prays for them. You can maybe imagine his prayer being like, God, have mercy on these foolish, foolish people. They're just ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. Just please don't hold it against them. Forgive them. I don't know what's wrong with them. As we might be tempted to pray for somebody we see who's living in sin. But Daniel does not separate himself from them. It's always we rebelled against you. We forsook your law because of our sin. In verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. He's confessing on behalf of an entire people. He aligns himself with them. And from this, though, let me just point out that we can conclude that his personal life must have included confession of sin, which is just an important thing to keep in mind as we're coming before the Lord, as we're praying. We want to have a heart of confession. We come before him but as, as we humble ourselves, confessing our sins, confessing our wrongdoing, not because it, these, this act in itself makes us right before God because we are forgiven by the blood of Christ, but what it does is it reminds us of his righteousness and our need to be saved from our lack of righteousness by the blood of Jesus Christ. So there's an important note to keep in mind in our personal prayer life, having confession. But Daniel's confession here is for the sake of all of Israel. This is a prayer of intercession, of intercession, meaning he's praying on behalf of an entire people, and he aligns himself with them completely. Not only does Daniel have great empathy for the plight of God's people, and you can keep in mind, Daniel had it good. He wasn't living in a gutter. He was living in the king's palace. You know, he had it good. He had a good life. 
in Babylon. And yet he aligns himself completely with them in their sin. Not only is he empathetic towards their plight, but he aligns himself as equally worthy of the punishment received by them. Keeping in mind, he was also taken at a young age into Babylon. Oh, that we would pray for the lost. That we would pray for the lost. Pray for sinners. Pray for those who need to know Christ. Not from a perspective of superiority, but rather with direct alignment. Seeing that we are just as much sinners as the worst of sinners. We're not better We're not better off. We're not greater. None of us, I mean, I I don't know, you can come talk to me after if you disagree, but I don't think any of us live as righteous a life as Daniel did. And yet, he is quick to align himself with even the worst of the sinners. Those who bought into the culture, those who did not remain faithful, even though Daniel did, We would align ourselves. And as I mentioned, Daniel's prayer is not, it's not just a, a prayer of confession, but it's, it's purposeful, even strategic. And we can be strategic in our prayer. We don't have to just go into it. Notice that Daniel doesn't just begin his plea to the Lord with babbling or blubbering. Oh, we're so sorry, God. I'm so, so sorry. We're so stupid. We messed up again. Banging his head on the wall. Sometimes our prayers seem to be when we've seen, when we see our sin, when we see where we've messed up, we see that we're messed up again and again. And we, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's, that's not a strategic, purposeful, biblical prayer. Let's look how Daniel begins his prayer. What does he start with? Lord, this is in verse 4, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands, commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. What an interesting image of confession. What an interesting and strategic way of confessing sin, something to take with you. This, his prayer begins and is filled with a glory of God giving God glory, lifting up his name. He draws, so what is it doing? It's drawing this image of who God is. God in his greatness, God in his might, in his power, in his authority, in his awesomeness. God, look how great you are. Look how awesome you are. Remember how loving you are, how merciful you are, how gracious you are, how faithful you are to your people. And then he draws the comparison. And I'm a sinner. We're sinners. But oof, how little my sin looks compared to how great you are. Look how little my sin looks compared to how great you are. Can my sin compete with your grace? Can my sin compete with your mercy, with your forgiveness, with your love? Look how awesome you are. Now this does not mean that he's belittling the sin. Quite on the contrary, if you read through it again, he's, he goes into quite great detail, laying out that they deserve what God has brought upon them. It is his righteous judgment. 
Yet it's, he begins his prayer where our prayers should also begin with looking up at the awe of God. See, when we're looking up, if I come to God to confess and I look up at him, it's like, wait, why was I here? Wow, you're awesome. Wow, you're amazing. Oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Here's my sin. How often we come the other way. Oh, woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm horrible. I'm not worthy. We're looking down, focusing on ourselves. Let's look up, as Daniel did. Daniel first had his eyes fixed on God, then focusing on the state of his people. He himself, his own needs seem to be a small afterthought in his prayer. He's not, he brings himself so, the only thing he brings himself into is the sin. I'm a sinner just as much as they are. Even though in, in any real sense he wasn't. But he does not even for a second separate himself. Because in the eyes of God, we're all sinners. And he has his eyes fixed in the right place. He has this right perspective. And it is this right perspective that allows Daniel to always maintain the view that God is righteous in who he is. That God has done me no wrong. He's done, I was, I've been in exile, was taken as a child, made into a eunuch to serve the king. Everything I've been through in my life, all these different kings I've, I've had to serve under, some incredibly wicked kings, you did me no wrong. You are good. You are righteous. We have that view when our eyes are focused on God, gazing at him. Daniel never for a moment accuses God of doing any wrong to him or to his people. In verse 14, the Lord says, I'll, I'll start here, the Lord, kind of in the middle, the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Oh, this comparison. He's righteous. He is good. He is great. He is awesome. We're sinners. Daniel sees that, it, that in all of this, God remains righteous. He has done no wrong. And let's, let me just give you this as an extra thing here, the 70 weeks. In verse, uh, kind of starting at the therefore in verse 11 and into the first part of verse 12, it says, Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, these curses, these sworn judgments have come, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us. So he's talking about the words that you spoke against us the, through Jeremiah, the prophet. Those words have now been fulfilled. This is what's happening. You are good. You are righteous. You have done nothing wrong. This is exactly what would, was meant to happen. And this, when he talks about the command of Moses, just as a tidbit about this idea of the 70 years. See, in the law, there was... There was one, a Sabbath law, and we know maybe the weekly Sabbath law that you were supposed to rest on the seventh day, which was Saturday in the Old Testament. There was also a law for the land itself, that the land itself needed to have rest, that there needed, every seven years there was supposed to be one year where the land had rest. There were, you didn't grow crops or anything, you just let the land, the land kind of uh, basically, yeah, rest, which actually is a really good thing that we know now is actually good for the land. And for 490 years, they disobeyed, and they never did any Sabbath years. 
And if you do just a, a few, uh, some simple division there, you can see that that comes up to 70 years owed, if you will. That in a sense, the Israelites owed God 70 years of Sabbath for the land. And so they were taken out of their land. God took them out of their land. They're taken to Babylon, and the land had rest for 70 years. It's all, God is always being faithful. It confirms the righteousness of God. It doesn't show God to be mean or judgment or just passing judgment out of, uh, on a whim or out of, without any meaning. God is righteous. And the absolute nature, it shows us the absolute nature of his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. And how he is in control of all things. And everything is ultimately working out for his glory. So with that in mind, let's continue now looking at this strategic nature of Daniel's prayer life. In verse 15, if you want to read with me, verse 15. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made, your, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. He's always, always bringing back this confession, but he's also what is he doing here? He's kind of switching here. Daniel's beginning to remind God more of his goodness, remind God more of his might, more of his favor on his people, reminding him how he rescued them out of Egypt. And they were sinners then, and they're sinners now. We're sinners. Remember how you rescued us? Yeah, we're, we're sinners. There's, there's, there's a strategic nature into the, in the way that he's doing this. He's bringing back God's own promises, reminding God of his own word, his own works that he's done before. A good thing for us to bring into our prayer life. And as we look through some of the last, or the, kind of towards the end, the words of his prayer, we see God, Daniel's purpose in seeing God's name be glorified. In verse 17, he says, Now our God Hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. Hear what, hear what we're saying. Hear what I'm saying, Lord. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. And later on it says, it bears your name. It bears your name. This is a great tool to apply to your prayer life and being strategic in your prayer. I talked about going through the word of God, right? We want to constantly be absorbing the word of God because it motivates us, it ignites our prayer life. But let me also show, add to that the importance of praying God's word, praying his promises. And the New Testament is filled with amazing promises. You say, God, your word says, I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. Ah, but your word says that I'm new. I am being made new, that I'm being sanctified, that I'm being justified. We can bring his word back to him. And there's nothing more powerful than to use God's own words back to him. Why? Because, what, let's see, what, what, let me show you what we're seeing here with Daniel. Daniel's aware of the sin and unworthiness of himself and his people, as we should also be. So he does not pray on his or Israel's merit. Do you see what's happening here? He's applying faith. This is like new covenant faith, guys, in the Old Testament. He's applying God's righteousness to his own prayer. Rather, so we see him, he's relying on God's own character, God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, his promises, and that he will keep his promises. 
In verse 18, we see that a little bit more explicit. I'll start at this. We do not make requests of you. We do not make requests. So everything I'm requesting here, we do not make of you because we are righteous. Not because we're good, but because of your great mercy. That's like right out of the New Testament. How encouraging to be reminded that we do not pray because of our righteousness. And it, it, when you think you, you're praying out of your own strength, you're not going to be very successful in your prayer. Don't pray out of your own righteousness. And today, we pray out of the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. And I'm not saying you have to say in the name of Jesus after every prayer. It's not a ritual. Uh, it's not magic words. And it's not something, but it's also not something that just sounds nice on the end of a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. My son is two, he, or three now, and he, he's, he has it quite uh, rhythmic now. I think it might be, yeah, that for him. But for you, it should be a little bit different. You should have understanding of why we say in Jesus' name. Because as we do, it's a declaration. And for me, it's a reminder. I say it because it reminds me and, and that I'm declaring that the prayer that I just prayed is not going up to heaven because I'm worthy to be heard, because I'm good enough for God to hear what I have to say, but because of the worthiness bestowed upon me by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for my sin on the cross. That is why my prayer is heard by God and why I know every word is heard by every prayer that I pray is heard by God because Jesus intercedes on my behalf and he sits right next to the Father in heaven. Today we bear the name of God through Jesus Christ. So let us be people who pray. And certainly we want to be, we want to be praying in public when we pray together, but I also want to just have this special emphasis for you and for you to take home with you and hopefully applied today May all our prayer be a reflection of deep, Bible-saturated, Jesus-exalting, selfless, humble prayer when we are just alone with God. Bible-saturated, Jesus-exalting, humble prayer when we come before him. Humble, reminding us of our confession of our sins. Let our prayers become more active for our city that our hearts would be broken for those who do not know the truth of Jesus Christ yet. That we would pray with the power and the authority of Jesus Christ and use the words of God to remind him of his own mercy and grace and love, to see his lost sheep come at his call. Let us be people who pray with power. And this is where it begins. Cultivate a good home prayer life when you're alone with God. And your prayer life in public will also flourish. But if your prayer life in private is non-existent or weak, you're never going to have the real authority in prayer because you're not going to understand these truths. You're not going to grasp this fully. So hold on to these things. And as we begin to close, let me look. Let's look a little bit at, because we should, let's look a little bit at the response Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request 
to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord my God. In verse 21, I'll jump to Gabriel, the man. Of course, man, most translation, man in appearance. This is clearly the angel Gabriel, and he also mentions that it's the one he saw before in previous visions, and also we'll see again in chapter 10. So came to me in swift flight. Interesting fact, one of the only times we see angels or evidence of angels actually flying. Doesn't mention anything about wings. I'm not sure where that came from. But they do fly, apparently. Daniel could not even finish his prayer before God had already sent out the answer. As soon as you started praying, an answer was on its way. Now, we may see delay. There are different reasons we may see delay. And often, though, I believe today, it's often for our good that we see delay. The delay itself might be the answer that we're looking for. Or it could be that we weren't really praying to God. We weren't praying with a genuine heart. We weren't really seeking Him. We were just maybe trying to feel better about something or whatever it might be. I think sometimes we have to really check our hearts. Are we coming to God with the right heart? Because God does not hesitate to answer those who pray with a genuine heart. He does not hesitate. Verse 22 says, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. How glorious. How glorious that God answers with insight and understanding with insight and understanding. I think sometimes we separate that. We separate understanding and insight, which is what? Knowledge, understanding it with your mind. We separate this from everything spiritual, everything the Bible says. Well, just there's like feelings and these, you know, I just, I I was praying and I I just had this this certain feeling and I don't know know what it means. And maybe there's sometimes that that might be the case. But as I mentioned earlier, don't just stop there. Wrestle with it. Seek to understand. Renew your mind. Don't just let it fall to that. When we read, when I read, though, that uh, there's, I think there's the other side of this. When I read what it says here that uh, he has favor, that you have, you're highly esteemed. Most translations say you are highly favored. I think, wow, well, okay. Yeah, okay, the angel came swiftly. Must be nice. Must be nice to be highly favored. Have, to have an archangel come and, and tell you that you're highly favored by God, that might be a special treat. But I don't know. I don't, feel, I don't feel so favored by God. I know myself. I know my sins. I know my shortcomings and my weaknesses. And oh, I was you know, angry in traffic this week. I was yelling at somebody. I was talking bad about somebody behind their back. I was lying. I was stealing. I was living in sin whatever that might be, I don't know if I'm highly favored. But we have to realize, as I've mentioned, of course you are. Of course you are. And until you really realize that, you're not going to have a powerful prayer life because it's not on your merit. It's not on your goodness. Just as Daniel realized then, that he is not making his request before God because of his righteousness, but because of God's mercy, putting the greatness and the worthiness back on God in the same way we today are highly favored, just as Daniel was. 
we are highly favored because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. God looks on us with favor, not because of our righteousness. God answers your prayers, but not because you are worthy to be heard, but because we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And we make our request to God under his righteousness. Now, I do want to touch just briefly. That's kind of the, the conclusion of the prayer portion. I want to touch briefly on this uh, vision, but I'm not going to unpack it. I know there's a lot to unpack. We certainly do not have time now. And we're going to see some repetition of some similar imagery later on in chapter 11. And so I do want to point one thing I think is, I find really encouraging as we go through it. And if you do want to know more, I can point you to some great resources or I can talk with you. Please feel free to, to come and ask me if you do want to talk more about this. But regarding this 70 weeks, uh, there's a man named Sir Robert Anderson. He did some very precise calculations. I read through all of them. There's a lot of numbers. I thought about walking you through them, but I felt like most of you guys would probably fall asleep unless you're really into math. I know a few of you might be, but for the rest of us, not so much. So he did some really precise calculations. And I just want to give you one of the summaries that he comes to. And we, we know from his calculations, and we have to keep in mind that there are a lot of things to, to take into consideration. And he did all of this, that the Hebrew calendar, for instance, was, has, a, has a different number of days than ours today, and a lot of variables uh, as they followed a lunar calendar. And he went through all of these variables. And if we look at the text, beginning with, with what we know to be the exact starting date, which is in the text, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So not the temple, but Jerusalem, which we know an exact day. We know it to the day from Scripture when that was fulfilled, that we, he then did calculations moving forward and coming up. And again, I'll walk you through the math if you want to, but just trust me, there's math involved. And he led, it came to the day, to the day, that we, as we understand to be the day that Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem being declared Hosanna. Here comes the King as we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It's fascinating. So the day that he declares himself to King, as we see in the text. So even though Daniel knew that there was going to be more trouble, and we see a lot of depictions of uh, things going beyond Christ, and again, more images of the Antichrist. But in this, in the midst of this, is this great, this kind of glimmer of hope all the way through, that there's one who will have victory. Though more persecution was coming, there was also a great promise of a Messiah who would take away sin and the transgression of sin, who would bring in everlasting righteousness, who would defeat death in the end. This is a hope we still cling to today. This is one of the hopes that we can hold on to in these ancient prophecies. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King. He is the King come. His kingdom has come. We are in it when we belong to Him. And what I want to, you to leave with as we close the sermon and prepare for a time of led prayer that we have victory in Christ in our prayer life, because we pray through his righteousness, but we ultimately look forward 
to the great victory when he comes again. I want to invite the band to come up. And uh, looking at, uh, at Daniel and his heart and prayer, we see this amazing example of intercessory prayer. And so we want to act on that today and have a time of intercessory prayer, which is, again, just the idea of one person praying for and on behalf of others. And so uh, before we close with a final song of worship, uh, Silvana, who can come up here in a moment, is going to lead us through a time of intercessory prayer. And so uh, let us maybe join with her as she prays to the Lord. And I would actually maybe ask that we stand. I think it might be good to stand. Make sure everyone's awake. God, I stand before you and I come into your presence humbled by the greatness of your word and by the beauty of it and by the fact that it has endured all this time and it remains unchanged. And that's true today as it was back when, when Daniel first heard it and when he first spoke it. And what I find even greater is that between Daniel and us, we have your son, Jesus Christ, and the beauty of the truth that became, and the word that became a body, a body that was crushed and whose life was given for us so we may live. So we stand here, God, as your church, your most beloved church. You've given your life for us. If there's one thing I want to ask you is that you keep us in your truth and in your love. That you give your church a mind that is in pursuit of your truth, a heart that is filled with your love, a love that is outpouring to, to the people around us, that we don't become exclusive, that we don't become selfish with it, that we don't turn people into projects, but that we're so filled with your Holy Spirit and with your love that there's nothing we can give people but that. I pray for the thought of eternity that you've put in us, for that hope that we are going to see you face to face one day. That is something that is alive in us. For the future of your church, Christ, we don't know what it looks like, but we know what it holds, and it holds the fulfillment of your promises. And I praise you for that, because you're a good God. And for everything and in everything, I give you thanks, and I praise your holy name. Amen. <laughs>